My nature is to find it difficult at times to find a place to calm down and to be calm. In fact, I'm pretty sure the scripture to be still and know that I'm God was written directly to me. I have two places that I found in my life um, that I specifically like to go to be calm. The first is a deer blind. Uh, when I go hunting, it's one of the few times in my life that I can sit and take a deep breath and I find myself calm down to the point that the only thing I have on my mind is the trees in the wilderness that sit in front of me. The second place is my, my most favorite place, and it really doesn't make sense uh, because it's the beach. And so my picture taken this morning for the lesson is of the beach, and it's because I love the beach. It's a place that I can go and I find myself to be calm, to listen to the water and the fresh air calms me. I say it doesn't make sense because I'm a redhead, I'm a ginger, so I sunburn easily. I do not look appealing in a bathing suit, so I usually dress rather modestly on the beach. I'm the guy with the funny hat and the sunglasses and the t-shirt and the shorts and that your children probably make fun of, that you girls probably make fun of. Look at that old guy. But I can guarantee you that I sit in my chair and I stare at the ocean and I'm calm. God gives me a spirit in that moment of calmness. And today I want to talk about having or being given a calming spirit by God. John 14, 26 and 28, the Bible reads, But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things. And will remind you of everything I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Do not give up to you as, as the I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You heard me say I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the father. For the father is greater than I. I want to kind of set the stage. We've been here before just a few weeks ago of the context of this text that I just read to you. John chapter 13 and 14 is set in the upper room and the conversation. There's many things in this conversation that's included many different aspects, many different variables. And I want to talk just for a second to kind of set the stage. So we're going to do a little survey here of John 13. Before I do that, I'll kind of set this stage. Have you ever had one of those family meetings? You know, the ones where all the children are put around the table and you're addressing an issue as the family and the family in its entirety sits and listens. And this is kind of the atmosphere of the upper room. Jesus has brought in all of his apostles in and they're all sitting around the table. They're reclined at this table. And so what he's about to teach is important. And in John 13, one through 17, we see him deliver the, the message and offer the vision of washing the apostles feet, which we talked about just a few weeks ago. 
So he sets this example of selflessness. But also understand what he creates in the mind of his apostles in that moment is a bit of confusion because he seems to step out of place with what a king would do, with what they wanted him to be when he takes that position of servant. I'll jump out of the John text for just a minute to, to create our setting to Luke 22, 14 through 21. And this is where the instructions of how Jesus wanted to be remembered. This thing of this thing of communion that we just took part in all happens in this room. And so they have the confusion of of some doubt about what God, what Jesus is demonstrating as to who he is to them. And then he says, well, and I'm going to want you to remember me. He's talking in such a way that seems like, okay, he's going to go away and they're going to have to grasp that. So there's doubt. There's confusion. There's there's maybe a little bit of misunderstanding. Back in the text of the Gospel of John 13, 18 through 30, the prophecy of Judas's betrayal plays out. So not only what happens around this table is doubt and and misunderstanding, but he looks across the table and he confronts the man who will betray him. So can you imagine in this family meeting at this moment, the one son is confronted with his sin, with what he's going to do by dad. You can imagine the tension. Maybe some anger. Think of what it did to the other men around the table. And this is the setting and the emotion of this room. In John 13, 38, the prophecy of Peter's denial, the one, the one follower that everybody thought around the table was was a shoe in Peter. He spent most of his time with Jesus. Jesus spent more time with him than he did the others. And yet he looks at Peter and says, you're going to deny me. And there's fear and there's doubt and there's all this negative emotion around the table. There's this illustration that Jesus gave of being selfless when they wanted him to be this powerful king that was going to change everything. And I can't imagine that. That everybody sitting around this table would sit and say, well, things things are as they should be. And it's the this is the kind of the the atmosphere in the upper room. And then finally, in John 14, 5 through 14, the confusion and ignorance of Thomas and Philip. You know, they, they question all of this as is happening. So we're we're sitting in this upper room where around the table, there's all these. All these externals that's going on. And Jesus has created this in this moment. I believe for the reason of, of kind of the final part of the lesson here around the table. You know, before we move on, I want to say this. We often miss the amount of teaching and example setting that Jesus offered in this story. We will we'll, we'll talk about the story in the context of one of these things or the other thing. We we'll talk about it in the context of communion or we'll talk about it in the context of the washing of feet or we'll talk about it in the context of Thomas's doubt or Judas's betrayal or Peter's denial. But when we bring this all together into one room, this is quite a setting. There's quite a lot going on in this moment. But Jesus is a master teacher And what he's doing here is he's giving the apostles everything they're going to need to get through these moments. This atmosphere is created so they'll understand what life's going to be like going beyond this point. 
Because once Jesus is dead on the cross, the apostles are going to face a lot of adversity. What they will face is a lot of turmoil and they have to be ready to face that and they have to feel equipped to face that. And Jesus is the master teacher at preparing them for that. You know, Jesus is strategic. He's careful to ensure the vessel that will carry out the gospel is intact and it's equipped. Understand these men sitting around this table that will go through all this turmoil and go through all this strife. And go through all the different external emotions that you can possibly go through are also the ones responsible for carrying the gospel into all the world. So when you prepare a group of soldiers to do that kind of task, it needs to be done correctly. They need to be equipped correctly. They need to be ready for the task at hand. The chaos of the story And the depth of need the apostles have demonstrates how difficult Christianity can be. When we look at the upper room and we look at the context of the upper room and what's going on, what we can latch on to, what we can understand is that Christianity is not as easy as it may seem. There's not one place in Scripture that I can personally think of where God or Jesus either one says, hey, this journey of Christianity from the birth Through your physical death, if you're a Christian, it's going to be easy. No problem. I can't think of one place where it says that. In fact, the stories that I read say just the opposite. It's going to be difficult. And we have to be prepared for the adversity that comes with that lifestyle. Even the apostles struggled. And they had the luxury of seeing Jesus firsthand. I mean, here we are in the upper room. There's doubt. There's denial, there's defiance, and they're the ones that walked with him. They saw it face to face. So certainly we can understand how in our world we're going to deal with that as Christians. Jesus loved them in their broken state. I want to point this out. He's dining around the table with them. And even the one who will deny him, he washed his feet. Amen. Even the one that would hand him over to be killed, he washed his feet. Amen. Jesus loved them where they were. But his intention in this teaching is that they don't stay that way, that they grow out of that. I mean, we correct our children because we want them to grow out of the lack of responsibility or the lack of obedience. We love them the way they are. We don't stop loving them because they make mistakes. We don't stop. We don't we don't drop them off on the side of the road because they don't do right. We love them through it. And Jesus here is setting that example. He loved them in their broken state, but he didn't desire for them to remain in that state. Max Lucado uses this quote in a book. He was training them to follow him. Understand in this moment, this is training. Jesus is teaching them how to follow him completely. A testimony of Jesus that's even that is even with knowledge of what these men would do in their sin. He loved them and encouraged them. Jesus used the most broken of broken. To demonstrate. His faith in God's ability to change man's heart. Think about Judas and Peter and this denial and this defiance. And he uses this lesson to show that man can change 
And we're going to look at that in Peter's demonstration in just a few moments. In their moment of doubt, fear, confusion and betrayal and denial, Jesus offers his apostles a gift. This is how much he loved them. Everything that's going around this table in the upper room. (laughs) He ends the conversation by, I'm going to give you a gift. Doesn't seem quite right. To confront the one that will hand you over for death with a gift. Or to confront the one that will deny you when you're hanging on the cross. Even to the point that he he curses saying he didn't know you with a gift. But he offers them a gift because he knew the struggles that they would have. Jesus was not a savior that abandoned them with only their own ability to make a decision. But he gave them the gift of a guide. And this is the setting of the upper room. And this is the lesson of that time and that moment. But here's the application. Here's the good news, if you will. The promised Holy Spirit that we see in the Gospel of John is meant by Jesus to be a gift to calm, to comfort, and to bring control to the apostles in their moments of strife. And although Jesus was leaving them uh, was leaving them in a visual sense, he was not leaving them abandoned. Jesus wanted them to understand that. He didn't desire for his apostles to be trapped. And the good news is that the promise of a calming spirit was not only meant for them, but it's also meant for us. You know, Peter, the one accused of denial, a little bit later in the story, which we'll continue to study through on Sunday morning Bible class over the course of the year, in the continuance of the story, Peter one day steps up to a pulpit at Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit comes upon him and he's looking out upon a crowd of people. And in that crowd of people are included the ones who yelled crucify earlier in the story. And they're convicted. And they ask Peter, Peter, in our conviction, we know we've got to fix this with God. We've got to make this right. What should we do? And in Acts 2, 38 and 39, a verse that many of us know by heart, Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Peter takes it from the table of men in the upper room, and all of a sudden he's introducing this gift that was given there to all who were standing at Pentecost. Amen? So it wasn't just for the men in the upper room. He takes it beyond this and he says, no, this gift's available to all of us here at Pentecost who are convicted. But then he gives verse 39 and church, this is what we need to embrace. He says, the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off for all whom the Lord God will call. Verse 39, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, brings application to this story to you and I. Because here's what's true. Your life and my life will have chaos. 
You'll have denial in your life. You'll have confusion. You'll have grief. You'll have sorrow. You'll have doubt. You'll have fear. But what you don't have is a God that's left you alone. (laughs) What we don't have is a God who has abandoned us. What we have is a Savior in Jesus that in a room with 12 men that was in utter chaos delivered a gift. And then that gift was meant to be given and he gave it he gave it to a vessel that would take it into all the world in a message. And that message was to land on us as well. Norman Vincent Peale is a minister and an author who lived from May 1998 until December of 1994. I want to read just a couple of things. He was a minister for 52 years, serving in a number of evangelical churches. The last church he served was the Marble Collegiate Church in New York City. The church was about 500 when Peel began to minister to them, and it grew to a congregation of over 6,000. Peel teamed with a man named Smiley Blanton to establish a congregation of people who not only dealt with the spiritual needs of the community, but also the mental needs of the community. Blanton was the mental health professional and Peel was the was the man who did the the the, the spiritual ministering. So they they worked together to meet the needs on both ends, because what they understood was that the. Mental issues, when I say mental issues, the grief and the sorrow and all the different things that came along were connected to the spirit. So they teamed up to minister to the people of New York. And in a sense, this kind of became the model, the early model of the 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 12 step approach to ministry and recovery, as we see by Saddleback Ministries in California. Norman Peale said this, the antidote to frustration is a calming faith, not in your own cleverness or in hard toil, but in God's guidance. The guide of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was taught that without his Jesus taught that without his presence within us in the form of the Holy Spirit and without a relationship with God that guides us, we live in a constant state of frustration. We need to think about that for just a moment. How much calmness does God bring us when we connect with God through spirit? Doesn't it bring a calm that we can't find anywhere else? That's been my experience. My experience is that when I go on a vacation, I'm usually stressed and crazy from all the different things going on. Even the things in the church bring stress and craziness. You combine that with family. You combine that with just the work of the church, not even the spiritual part of the church. And when I go on vacation, I'm I'm stretched. I'm stressed about as far as I can be. And I'm looking for somewhere calm. A comforting Calmness, a calm spirit. And where I found it tends to be in this setting, in a quiet place away where I can connect with God in prayer, 
in his word. You know, the strength of ministry of the apostles to the world, the strength of churches like the one Peel ministered to in New York, the strength of any healthy congregation or group of people in modern Christianity is based and built upon the Holy Spirit and embracing the gift that God gave us. Understanding that we are not alone and that the people we're ministering to don't have to be alone. And then delivering that message, being the vessel that takes the good news into all the world. When we read John fourteen twenty six through 28, Jesus is in an atmosphere of people that he loves, people that he trusts, people that dropped everything to follow him. Some of which are struggling with denial, fear, frustration, guilt. And he calms that room with a message of a gift. The gift of the Holy Spirit. And he asks them to be able to embrace that gift. And to utilize that gift. For the job and the task at hand. And that's to share the gospel with all the world. To leave that room. And to go into. All of creation. With the message of salvation. This morning. The invitation is this. Embrace a calming spirit today. There's no reason to walk any longer in fear, guilt, strife, turmoil. There's no reason to walk through life any more unguided, feeling confused, feeling abandoned, feeling alone. Jesus has already solved those issues through the gift of His Spirit. But you have to make the choice to embrace it. Don't make the choice to walk away from it again today. Don't, don't make the choice to put it on the shelf for another day and say, you know, one of these days I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go forward. I'm going to make it right. Don't be afraid to deny that God is at work by His Holy Spirit in your life. Don't be afraid to deny that testimony any longer. But today... Embrace this moment. Embrace this moment in the blessing of this day and this gift that God gave. Because the moment's short, church. The moment is short. If the church can be of aid to you in any way, shape, or form, we offer this time as a family we stand and sing together. Let's stand and sing, church.